Hi there. Thank you for downloading to listen to Iconocast. This is a science and advocacy podcast. This is episode 31. So if you listen to episode 30, that was Greg's interview with Megan Bond. And at the end of that, there was a piece that Greg and I did about the Reserve Mining Company in the North Shore of Minnesota. We kept on talking about northern Minnesota um, and we ended up talking about a lot of different things related to that including the floods in Fargo, Moorhead and Grand Forks in 1997 and we decided that we wanted to share that conversation because it was actually a lot of fun. So tune in, hang on and listen. I just had a long conversation with Megan Bond if things go as we expect listeners to this podcast have heard that conversation already and now we're moving on to the next topic and when we i talked to megan we talked a lot about mining in northern minnesota and although we made reference to the earlier rn mining and its importance in the in the development of the environmental movement we mainly focused on copper sulfide copper nickel sulfide mining which isn't being done now but it's being threat to be done in northern minnesota and we talked a lot about that uh, but you have been researching the Reserve Mining Company incidents. Right. Why don't you tell right. us what, what's that about? Well, I'll just give you a little bit of background because you referenced the iron mines. Um, but originally, there were three main iron ranges in northeastern Minnesota. There was the Vermilion Range, the Cuyuna Range, and the Mesabi Range. And they started mining iron in Minnesota in the 1870s. And this is built a lot of the skyscrapers, skyscrapers in uh, a lot of the steel from, for the United States came from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and in the Iron Range in Minnesota. By the 1950s, though, iron was running out um, in the Iron Range, high-quality iron ore that, that came out of the Vermilion Range being, had been taken. In the Mesabi Range, there was still quite a bit of iron, but it was tied up in a type of ore called um, taconite which is a low grade iron ore. It's not as easy to extract. And so the process for extracting iron from taconite, since it's about 30, 35% um, iron and the rest is rock, uh, is to crush it up in really fine dust and take these huge magnets. And then the magnets would take the dust that was iron and then they would have to do something to dispose of the taconite. These are called tailings because that was pretty much what was left over. It was like the tail end of the process. And in the 1950s, uh, the Reserve Mining Company was a joint venture of three different large iron mine companies. And so what they had decided to do with the tailings uh, was basically to take them down and they built this new town called Silver Bay, which is just uh, uh, north of Duluth, probably about uh, 30 miles. <clears throat> and um, they built this really long chute. And if you drive along the North Shore Drive, when you get to Silver Bay, you'll see this big long chute uh, coming from a hill at the top of town over towards Lake Superior. And from this, this is where they would take and they would run all the tailings and they would just shoot it straight down into the lake. And in the 1950s, everybody thought this was great because it was a way to preserve uh, jobs in the Mesabi Range so that the miners that had lost their positions 
at the vermilion range and at the community range they could move and they could start uh, mining and uh, feed their families um, because this was the main industry in northeastern Minnesota. I mean, there was fishing and camping and hiking and stuff like that, but this is kind of what paid the bills, paid the taxes and all that. So it was really a vital industry. And um, so it, was, it seemed like a good deal for everybody. But then in the early 1960s, uh, there had been like a really great herring fishery in uh, Lake Superior. Because they were small fish, they would also feed other fish like lake trout and some of the other things that um, that we would feed. We would fish, to, you know, as in the resorts, and also commercial fisheries would would uh, take the larger fish. But they were starting to see that the hauls were getting smaller and smaller, and started investigating. And scientists were taking a look down um, into that area around Silver Bay to see if they could determine what happened, and then the bottom of the lake, they were seeing coatings of materials from the tailings that were preventing the herring from hatching. And so it was killing, killing the, the herring fishery. And so they started taking their concerns and it was a classic environmentalist versus the town type of situation where uh, the environmentalists kind of considered wackos that were trying to tell them how to run their lives and they needed to have their jobs and all that stuff. And so the environmentalists that were raising concern and the fishermen that were raising concerns about what the environmental effects of the tailings were, uh, were not getting very far <clears throat> until they brought in some, some uh, people to do water testing to see if there was anything in the water. And they discovered that there was a form of asbestos that was in the water. And so it must have been an element that was is the rock and this part of the rock in the, in the taconite. The thing about it is that um, back then, uh, Duluth and Superior, which are two large cities right at the um, very Western corner peak of Lake Superior for the water supply for the city, drinking water, um, and what they would take in for you know, laundry and all that kind of stuff that was coming directly from the lake. It wasn't processed. They didn't have like a water uh, cleaning system like we do in, in our modern uh, municipal water systems. And so if you open up the tap, the water that had been taken up into the tower and that was dropped down into the line to give you water pressure, it was just coming through the lake. And so they discovered that there was asbestos in the water. This was also at the time that we knew that um, there was asbestos caused different types of cancer. The researchers took their results and they went to the EPA. And EPA in 1973, I think it was in 1973, the EPA was formed by uh, the Nixon administration. I think so. So they took the results to the EPA and the EPA went to the reserve mining company and said, well, you're going to give cancer to everybody in Duluth and Superior if you don't find a way to dispose of the tailings a different way. And uh, the reserve mining company said, well, there is no one. We looked at all kinds of alternatives and there's nothing available. So we have to do this. Otherwise, people are going to lose their jobs and we won't be able to build any more skyscrapers. And so then the EPA um, took them to court in 1973. And there was a, a year-long trial. There was a judgment, and the judge was uh, Judge Miles Lord. And I remember a lot of this stuff from reading the newspapers when I was a kid. It was like in the Daily um, Star Tribune. There was always an article about Reserve Mining Company. 
So by the end of the year, uh, Judge Miles Lord handed out a ruling that said that the reserve mining company had to stop dropping their tailings into Lake Superior. Um, and of course, the reserve mining company uh, filed a countersuit and then they appealed it. And in the process took about seven years. There was a, an alternative site that had been discovered by geologists that would work satisfactorily at a place called Milepost 7. And um, they proposed, they, the EPA proposed this site to Reserve Mining Company. At first, Reserve Mining Company said, no, that won't work. And it's not too far away from Silver Bay. And I'm not sure which road it's on, but it's, gonna, it's called uh, Milepost 7. And it's basically just a um, uh, pond that they can dump it in. And in 1980, was finally ruled that this was a satisfactory solution and both the reserve mining company and the EPA agreed that they could, uh, instead of dropping the tailings into Lake Superior, they could put them in at Myopole 7. And, um, and that's basically how that turned out. It sounds like it was an important milestone in environmental regulation. It was actually the first, the first time that a government agency or a federal government agency they actually sued on behalf of the environment, environment and actually made a case and won. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty significant. And, yes. and when you propose talking to Megan about um, the, the new mines that are being proposed up there, that's, that's what brought it to mind. Yeah. So it sets a pretty good precedent. Um, yeah. One, one thing I want to, I want to just say something that isn't that directly related to your point you're making, but we are an international podcast we have, I think, one listener in Australia, at least. Um, <laughs> but when I moved to Minnesota, I heard the word range being used a lot. So right. I assumed there was a range of mountains somewhere. I figured they weren't very big because I'd never heard of mountains. Here, no. but, but so I remember driving up north. Uh, one of the first, very first time, days, weeks I was here, the very first thing I did was to drive up to Itasca for a conference. And I took the long way back. I drove from Itasca to some point to Grand Rapids east. Oh, that east. is a long way around. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I drove way east over to near Duluth and came down yeah. that way. Okay. And so, uh, and I, and I did, I drove north a few times and I thought one day I'm going to, I'm going to go up and see what the range is. And we are actually, my daughter and I were going to go to Ely and I knew Ely was north of the range, but right. our destination was Ely, which is for those who don't know, for those who are listening to Megan, Ely is in the middle of the area that includes the boundary waters and it's kind of between the boundary waters and the Voyagers National Park. Area. It's a launch point, yeah. It's kind of a yeah. launch point for people yeah. that want to portage. Yeah, if you go if you go into boundary waters, you go to you yeah. go to Ely and you go to the yeah. Outfitters, and that's where you find your guide. So, and I, I got up there and I re I remembered. Wait, I thought we were going to go over the Iron Ranges, but I didn't see any mountains. Oh. So, so that, of course, I got out. There turns out we have this major, major concentration of information. Someone has a, has a, has done which all the information in the world has been put in one easy to access place called the internet. So I went there and I found out that the word range is not like it's used. To, it's like Minnesota, a ramp is a parking lot. Mm -hmm. Only in Minnesota is a ramp a park. Everywhere else, a ramp is a little side road that goes on and off of a highway. Yeah. Okay. In Minnesota, a ramp, we park in the ramp next to the building. Okay. And a range is an underground rock formation peaking up somewhere outcropping but not as a mountain it's just that's where you that's and they and they they are just as you point you, you name them all they're distinct places where iron ore is found and they're completely flat the only thing 
that sticks up anywhere near a range is the pile of tailings that has been made yeah. from mining. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. The um, highest point in Minnesota is 3,400 feet. It's uh, Eagle Point. And it's somewhere up in, yep. it, in it, the Arrowhead Range. It, if you drive from, I don't remember where you take off. If you take off from Lake, you go up Lake Superior, up on the North Shore, and take a left, I think it's Route 1, uh, goes into Ely. That's not how most people get to Ely. Most people go up through the woods. You go to the lake and head into Ely. You are, you are at the lake, which is the lowest point in Minnesota. Lake Superior Shore is the lowest point in Minnesota. Yeah. Lower, lower than where the Mississippi exits the state in the south. And then you drive straight up to that Eagle Point. It's not far. It's mm-hmm. a really short drive. And it's up. It's a, it's a pretty, it's, it's almost like you're in a mountainous area somewhere. Your, your car will start to like, overheat a little bit if you're you know if you have one of those kind of cars yeah yeah and it's right there yeah and this of course is the edge like the the, the edge it's a beautiful place the, the the uh north shore is is the edge of an ancient rift valley so as you drive along the north shore it was that route 51 along the along the lake 61, 61 along yeah. the lake so to your right is a usually a big cliff going down to the lake so and, and you can drive down to two points but you're up above the lake pretty far but yep. to your left is an even bigger cliff going up to the inland. So you're right. driving like on this rift wall. And every so often at a pretty regular interval, there'll be a river. And at each river, there's a place to stop. And there's a little, you know, smoke a bear hat guy or, or, a, or a ranger station kind of thing, a parking lot. And you can walk up these rivers and down the rivers and see the waterfalls. And it's something you wouldn't expect Minnesota to have. But Minnesota has... How many waterfalls on the North Shore are there? I mean, we don't we don't count them. We count like an entire river's worth as one thing. Yeah, there's. there's I took a trip up there on a motorcycle this last summer. Oh, you did. Yeah. I stopped at quite a few of them. Did I like Gooseberry Falls? I hadn't seen since I was a kid, you know. And then there's Cannon and and Kettle and and all you know a yeah. whole whole bunch of them. And Gooseberry is the one that everyone goes to. Yeah. And then as you go up, and we actually did that last summer too. We went up all the way up to uh, Pigeon River, which is mm-hmm. on the Canadian border that comes out of Grand Portage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's so that and that that. So that, you saw the South Sawtooth Mountains, then, right? Yeah, yeah. Those are not mountains. I mean, they look like a saw with the teeth on there, and they. I don't even know if they were an ancient range, but um, they were just ridges, right? Yeah. And because uh, everything was kind of smoothed out by like three or four glaciations um yeah and it is it, it, it's it's 23 glaciations yeah 23 glaciations probably 23 maybe, wow yeah or maybe maybe it's only 18 but there has been 23 glaciations in total in north america and i don't know if they all hit minnesota but uh, i bet most of them did well, and we know the, the Laurentian Shield did, that's for sure. Yeah, the, la- the last few definitely did. Yeah. And, and so, uh, and, and, and there are places there where the sedimentary rock is flat, like it was laid down. Yeah. And it was laid down 700 million years ago, 800 pre-Cambrian or earlier. And there's one place near, it's, what is that town up there, Grand Marais? Yeah, that's, that's the next one before Grand Portage. Yeah, so... Uh, Grand Marais uh, has that the part of the sawtooth that ridge goes all the way up to Grand Marais I don't think it's called sawtooth up there but it's a it's this 
um, sedimentary rock that metamorphic now, mm-hmm. and it's is works in such a way that it has been fractured, so that if you like poke at it with a sledgehammer, you're going to get blocks yeah. that are three and a half inches long, three quarters of an inch tall, and an inch and a half thick. Like it breaks into these standard sizes, and that stuff falls down slope, and it's really hard rock. It's integrated with chert. I think it's also iron ore, frankly, uh, low grade, and it goes into the lake where it then rolls and rolls and rolls for a couple hundred. Well, the, the current current is like a couple thousand years anyway. Um, so you get these amazing pebble beaches in a few places where every beach, every every pebble is the same exact size because yeah. these rocks break into the same exact size blocks and they roll down and they turn into this. Then there's also the Lake Superior agates, and I don't know much about the agates. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful gem. And I'm not really sure what makes what what um, what minerals make it up, but well, I think it's going to be all silica with with it, with impurities in the silica. So it's going to be aluminum and you know sure. all kinds of other impurities in it. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, they, they um, over over the years they've they've been smoothed out and tumbled. Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. And in, in, uh, I speaking of the cliffs, I. Uh, I learned a few years ago, like 10,000, it's only 10,000 years ago that the glade, the last glacier melted. It's, it's really right. recent. Yeah. And uh, as it as it melted, the continental shelf or the continental shelf had been had been squeezed by the weight of the glacier because it was at least a mile and a half thick. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it was up to four miles. Maybe that's over where I grew up in the Red River Valley, but um, it was really very thick. And so it was heavy enough where I was pushing the continent down. But as it melted, the continent um, rebounded, pressed. Yeah. And uh, and so that raised up the land where the raised up the land where the ice had been. And then, of course, as as the water ran into Lake Superior, then it compresses the rock underneath the water there. So mm-hmm. combination of the one going down and the other one going up led to the cliffs along the western western part of the uh, north northern shore. Mm-hmm. So like when yeah. you get up to Grand Ray, that's not the cliffs aren't quite as uh, pronounced, but it's, yeah, uh, and I wonder I wouldn't be surprised. And of course it is it is it is already a cliff there because it's the edge of this valley, the mid-continental right. rift. And but that's very but that's an ancient ancient thing. So lots of things have happened since then, and that rebound would do that. And I wonder if the glacial flexing, which happened several times in a big way, four or five times anyway, if that contributed to the fracturing of the rocks in this particular way, where they're all very uniformly fra- fractured, because it's probably. basically deforming it. But yeah, it's underappreciated. How much, but then if you, so, if you go up, if you go along the shore and you find these rivers, if it's 1800, 1805. And you're a, a European. What you do is you're you're there because you're in the fur trade, right? The fur trade is going full blast here, and many of these locations, the, the, the um, you mentioned, but the Kettle River, major inroad into the interior there. Um, the Pigeon River, which I mentioned up in the Canadian border, that's a major inroad to the interior. Mm-hmm. And we don't know much about what's going on in there. What we know is that there were these outposts that recorded things. And they recorded, you know, how many furs they got and what they paid and they all their provisions and all that stuff and who was working there. But then those people would go inland with Native Americans and they'd meet up mainly with Native Americans who were bringing the fur 
from a large catchment area where they were, where they were catching their fur. So you go up, up that cliff you mentioned and you go in a little ways and now all the water, if you're right near the river, is flowing into the river and back into Lake Superior, but all the other water is flowing the other way. And that's the water that goes all the way to Hudson's Bay. Right. Right. And that's the water that goes through Voyager's Park, goes up over, you know, so this whole, if you were listening to Megan's discussion with Megan earlier, that's the water that was flowing into, in the ancient days of the last glaciation, into Lake Agassiz. And, uh, and today it flows up north, the Red River flows north, this water flows north, all up into Hudson's Bay. Um, I think you know why the Red River flows north, right? But I wonder if our listeners understand. Why don't you tell them? So, uh, the, the, when speaking of Lake Agassiz, Lake Agassiz was this giant inland uh, freshwater sea or lake. And uh, it, the, the outflow from the lake was flowing south. It was mm-hmm. flew, it flew, flowed south down through what is now um, the Red River Valley. And then it went down and it cut over into what is now the Minnesota River. Right. And then it flowed down into the Mississippi and then from the Mississippi down to the sea or the Gulf of Mexico. But there was so much sediment that was being carried uh, from the outflow of Lake Agassiz that when it reached down to what is now like Bois de Sioux, which is like that kind of weird hump mm-hmm. on the left side of Minnesota, that it, um, it, it was starting to build up. It would build up higher and higher to the point where it could never actually, it, the flow was interrupted from the war from the, uh, by the Warren River. So it, it stopped flowing as far as the Minnesota and it kind of backed up. Right. So it started backing up and then it started flowing north uh, into now what is uh, Lake Winnipeg. So, right, which is the low spot, the wet spot left behind by, by right. Lake Agassiz. Um, I, I just want to tell you one story of a friend of mine who um, lived in the area of Fargo-Moorhead years ago. And um, she had a run-in with Blockbuster Video in Fargo. Mm. It might have been in Moorhead, where the floods were, because there was on both sides of the river, right? Um, yeah. And uh, they were—they they had basically ruined her credit. Like that, you couldn't, she couldn't get a credit card because she had not returned a video, or whatever. It was a bad situation. She couldn't. So, she couldn't get over the bridge. I'm sure, right? Right. Well, she she got she got the video. She found it. She got it, oh. and she went to. Um, she was going to go into town to return it, but that's when the flood happened that you mentioned earlier in the 1990s. So she wasn't able to go to town. Yeah. And so she waited till the flood was over and she was, you know, like she's going to go back a week later and, and return the video to the blockbuster. But you recall, ironically, we saw this with Hurricane Isaac just the other day where you look at the film of what was going on in that disaster and there were buildings on fire. So yeah. why does something catch on fire in a hurricane? Well, because of various reasons, but often electrical systems are disrupted or things are physically damaged. Like if you if you took your house and crunched it up, you'd end up with wires crossing potentially, or you end up with gas light. If people are, are lighting gas and whatever. For various reasons, we end up with fires during floods. And there was this famous newsreel that many people have seen of the Fargo flooding, where there was a city underwater and buildings sticking up out of it. And three or four, the, the, the main block downtown was burning to a crisp. That was Remember actually that? Grand Forks, yeah. It was it? Okay. That was Grand Forks, yep. That's where that's where her blockbuster video was. 
Yeah. It burnt her blockbuster video store burned to the ground. Now, okay, I, I told the story wrong. Sorry, I now remember the details of the story. I'm going to edit this. She had actually stopped during the, as the flood was waters were rising, she stopped at the Blockbuster video in Grand Forks where she owed the video and put it in the nighttime return box and got out of town. And yeah. that's the building that burned down with her video in it. And oh. then she wasn't able to prove that. And that's why her credit got messed up by Blockbuster. Wow. That's what happened. Yeah. That downtown is that's where we did all our Christmas shopping and stuff like that when I was a kid. Name all the like the department stores and stuff like that. And yeah. lunch counters and all of them are gone. And I went down, I went up to Grand Forks uh probably about five years after that. And it just didn't look the same. It was completely really? different looking town because they rebuilt it. Better the old buildings were yeah. Well, I mean, in a manner of speaking, it looked more like a more like a suburban strip mall area, I guess. Yeah, it's not as nice as, as, as the old yeah. buildings. So I wanted to go back to the uh, mines real quick and tell yeah. you something that's important for science. Um, one of the ranges, uh, the Vermilion Range, uh, that uh, ran out of uh, high-quality iron ore uh, was a Vermilion Range, and there was a mine there called the Sudan Mine. And that was actually the first mine in the Vermilion Range. I was hoping you were going to. I hope I was hoping you were going to tell us about the Sudan mine. Yeah. So they they realized that if they're going to collect and try to discover uh, these particles, these um, so what 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 type of particle is it? It's Neutri uh, neutrinos. Neutrinos. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and uh, neutrinos, they wanted to collect and see if they could uh, prove that neutrinos exist because they're theoretical particles. And um, because they're so fast and they're so tiny, they can um, go through like miles and miles of solid material without getting, without interrupting or getting interrupted by the molecules that are in the rock. And so there's a collection site in the Sudan mine, and they're hoping to capture neutrinos. And so there is there is a scientific there is a science uh, good end of the story to the Vermilion Range, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I actually uh, was invited several years ago to give the keynote address at a conference on the Sudan mines. Oh yeah, which is kind of like I was the time I was asked to give a keynote address at a conference on food safety. I know nothing about food safety. I know nothing about the Sudan mines and neutrinos. But the reason was they wanted an archaeologist in the case of Sudan, it was at the University of Minnesota, to okay. tell them, particle physicists, what archaeologists would like them to do for us. Oh. Because particle physics can be used to do things like date stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know what they're doing there now. But this, the interesting thing about the Sudan mine, it's an underground mine. Yep. And I know a guy who worked there. I, I see him at a case, he's a member of our Development Environmental Caucus. And we see him at meetings. Very interesting guy. He lives up in Tower which is a town that right near Sudan, which is where the, where the coldest spot in Minnesota sometimes. Yeah, it can be. And, and the mine's cold too down there. Yeah. Um, but you can go there now. You can actually physically go down the mine. As a tourist, you can go down and visit the mine. And the iron in that mine has, you know, iron ore has oxygen linked to, to iron. Right. And the, the configuration of iron and atoms and, and oxygen atoms in that stuff has one extra oxygen which means that when you're burning it, you're basically burning rock to get ore to, into, into steel, into iron. You're oh, burning wow. it and the iron melts out. Well, having that extra oxygen molecule in there, oxygen atom in there per 
unit gives you a hotter fire, it's easier to do. So even if you have like 80% crappy iron ore, if you put in 20% Sudan iron ore, it, it makes it better. So Sudan iron was be, ore was being sent around the world to mix with iron ore in other regions where iron mining was done. And then somebody thought of this brilliant idea where, well, we can just put oxygen in there like from an oxygen tank. <clears throat> we just get oxygen to stick it in there and we don't need to Sudan ore anymore. So it suddenly was not valuable because you have to dig it from really deep down. And wow. the Sudan mine, I looked it up, is 2,341 feet below the surface. Wow. The deepest part. So that's where that, and that's where that neutrino lab is on the very bottom. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting place to visit because you can learn how they mined. First of all, they mined in the dark. Yeah. And second, the way they did it, the way they mined in the Sudan was they mined in the dark and there were, there were these um, hematite layers. So hematite is very, very rich ore. And right. that's what they, they were digging for. And they could tell the hematite by touch. So feel some hematite and smash it with their hammers and put it in a bucket. Okay. And they would do that until they figured, until they had mined out an area that was maybe 20 feet down and several acres in extent. And the rock that was no good, they would throw down a hole to the lower level, which they'd already mined out and fill it in. And then okay. they'd keep mining up the layers like that. And, and, and they bring you down there and they bring you out and explain this to you. Then they turn the lights off and, and you, are, you get to feel the rock and tell the hematite from the rock in, in the dark. Uh. If you are claustrophobic, the, the, um, the elevator car that goes down is your packed in like sardines. Mm-hmm. And it goes down 2,341 feet, approximately. Because And then you get in a mine car. If you're afraid of machines and loud noises, you're in a mine car going clunk, 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 clunk at 15 miles an hour. So you're getting a 15-mile-an-hour wind. You go there in the summer because it's summer. That's why you go, you go to places like that in the summer in Minnesota. Right. It's now 48 degrees or something, yep. which is really chilly when there's a 15-mile-an-hour wind and you didn't bring a jacket. And then they bring you into these mine areas and tell you how to mine. So it's an extremely excruciating and almost gruesome experience, which it's supposed to be. Uh, but it's a great experience to do. Great to bring the kids to the crap out of it. I think I, I think I went down. I'm not sure if that was the mine I went, but I, I know that I went down a mine when I was a kid. And I kind of remember a similar experience. But I don't think that they turned the lights off when we were on our tour. Okay. They added that on. I think that was 1971. Uh, when I when I went on that tour, it might have been the Sudan mine, or it might have been another one, uh, yeah. also uh, on the Vermilion Range. But... There's a Cro- I think Croft mine is up there somewhere. Okay. Might be that. Just... It also might be that these days, because of the evils of CRT related thinking, oh. we na- we now look at something like mining and we admit the parts that were hard. Yeah. And in those days in '71, maybe they were making it. They were still glorifying it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, gee, was that mine? When did that mine close? When did Sudan mine close? It would, it would have been in the 1950s, I think. But um, I don't know. I think it was later than that. But so? Well, I know a guy who worked in it. Oh, really? And he's like 90. So he could have been 50s. Yeah. Um, I know it was open in 1878. Yeah. But I'm not sure when it closed. We can check the internet on that later. Anyway. So. <laughs> Another topic you were talking about before was the um, Sackett versus EPA Idaho wetlands. Yep. Decision. Yeah. Uh, You've been researching that. 
Yeah, I, I basically researching is is kind of a generous way to put it, but I did read an article on it, and perhaps we could do this on another episode when I've had a chance to look into it more deeply. But you know, just as a teaser, this is a huge Supreme Court case if you're interested in environmental uh, issues and what can happen with a super conservative court. In in that um, there's a there's a battle between the EPA and uh, and a landowner whose last name is Sackett. So it's Sackett versus EPA, who bought land that had been declared a wetland, um, and then rather than trying to uh, get permits, decided just to go to court for the right to build and develop that land. And uh, the case that the government is fighting is a claim that just gen- in general, environmental regulations are too strict and people can't do anything. So I'd like to look into that a little bit deeper and then we can talk on uh, our next podcast in some more detail because it's for the court now, and it'll probably get ruled on next July when they start releasing, releasing their judgments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting to see that, to hear about that. It was um, kind of a nice bookend for the, the first win that the EPA has and, and then maybe right. the first loss. Right. Um, <laughs> Not a nice bookend, but you know what I mean. Major loss, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I heard, I did hear some discussion about this on one of the podcasts I listened to that has some lawyers on it, but there's a, a podcast called Sisters-in-Law and they've got a couple of Supreme Court experts on it. They might have been talking about it there, but they'll definitely talk about it when it happens. Um, the, the Sudan mine closed in 1962. Okay. So my friend is just really old and maybe worked there as a kid. So you want to hear another mining story? Yeah. People are familiar with Hibbing because not only did Bob Dylan and Roger Maris come from there, but um, it's got an open pit. It's, uh, it's a mine where rather than digging a shaft, they just started with their shovels and dug land. And it's a, it's a huge mine. It's, and I used to think about a mile across, but that couldn't be realistic, but it's just a huge mine. But um, they decided that they needed to enlarge the mine. And it was back in the uh, 20s or 30s. And uh, there was this town in the way, this town of Hibbing. And so in order to be able to increase the size of the mine, so they continue digging, they actually moved Hibbing one mile and they just kind of picked it up and plotted it almost exactly, set all the buildings on rollers and logs and rollers and then redug basements and all that kind of stuff and just moved Hibbing so they could, so they could grow the mine. That's amazing. You know, I'm looking at a map of Hibbing mine and it goes one, two, three, four, five, six. It's elongated. Uh-huh. Right? It's about six or eight kilometers long and two kilometers yeah, and two kilometers wide. So it's a mile across. The short, the short way is a mile across. Long way is a few miles long. And it, yeah, and you usually stand on the edge of it. It's like being at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You know, yeah. So, yeah, it reminds me of Gilboa. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York, the New York City needed to upgrade its water supply. So they built these big reservoirs up in the Catskills. And Gilboa was a town. This was in 19, this is WPA, 1930s. Okay. And there was a town there. And they basically removed the town and built the reservoir. So the town is just a little tiny town nearby. There used to be a much bigger 
must have been a logging camp anyway. But yeah, it, it is interesting. If you look at a map, you see what if you look at a, at, at a when you Google in in like their space view satellite view, it looks like the Earth has been torn off north of Hibbing. It's like they just ripped off the Earth and made that a mine. Yeah. So, so they must. Yeah. Kind of like Jonathan Hogue type of thing. Do you remember that story? No. The unpleasant profession of Jonathan Hogue. No, I never heard that. Oh, uh, it's. Um, I don't. I don't think it was Heinlein, but I read it in the same collection, short story collection that I read some Heinlein stories, and so I was associated. No, I. I think it is Heinlein, but anyway. So um, Jonathan Hogue in this particular story was. It turned out he was like a an art critic, and his job was to to do a critique of God's creation. So he came to take a look at like, like four aliens or something, or like who hired him? Well, just something advanced beyond above God, I guess. Right, God okay. is just like an art student. Right. Yeah. And so you meet the main character who runs into Jonathan Hoke and and they survey the earth together and he, he talks about some of the things that he doesn't like. And he says, Well, I'm gonna put you in this cab and I'm gonna send you home and everything will look normal to you, but do not whatever you do roll down the windows until this five minute interval is up <laughs> so the main character's curiosity is kind of killing him and uh so he decides okay well i'm gonna roll down the window and uh he rolls down the window and looks out and there's absolutely nothing not dark not static not not it just nothing <laughs> and it's just jonathan Hogue doing his reset uh saying nope this project was no good. So that's right. what it looks like here at the edge of Hibbing, huh? Yeah, it looks like it. And I did, I did look it up on Wikipedia. The mine, it's a very complicated structure, so it's hard to say, but it is three miles long and two miles wide and 535 feet deep. And it was one of the world's first mechanized open pit mines, and it was started in 1895. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. They got these earth movers, these Euclid earth movers that are just huge where the tire is so like um, the, the sidewall of a tire is taller than a human. Yeah. You know, and then, and then the tire. Yeah. It's like a 25 foot diameter tire. Yeah. Or something like that. It's just amazingly huge. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is really amazing operation. And what, what you do when you go up there and you drive around, unless you go to the lookout. Is you don't see the pits so much, you see the tailing piles. Yeah. As you're driving the highways up there, you'll see. And now I helped somebody bring a boat from Lake Vermilion, which to um, over near Walker, which requires driving right across the Oregon Range from west from east to west. Right. And we had it was a big boat, a really big boat with a big structure that goes with it on a trailer. So it was 18 feet, 20 feet off the surface of the road. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting was we're we have to get gas on the way. So we pull the gas station and there's just a person standing there look, looks up at it and says, well, you're going to have to take this certain route. And he tells us the route. And it's like, there's only one way you can take a thing that big, but there's no problem. Because I was thinking we're going to be driving with this big giant thing behind the truck. We're going to get pulled over. Uh -huh. and, and as we're driving through the iron range, I look and there's this giant, giant, giant thing. That's like 10 times bigger than what we have. And it's a piece of mining equipment. And it's like driving down the street and a little while yeah. later, there's another thing pulled off the side of the road. There's these giant vehicles everywhere. And 
everybody who lives there just knows which bridges you can drive under with the big thing, which overpasses, right. you know, which right. way to go. And otherwise you can't go there. So we knew which ones ways to go. But uh, and what, what it kind of scares me, harking back to something we're talking about with Megan, which is the copper mining. I've been up to Ely in the middle of that area a couple of few times. And the last time I was up there, they had been rebuilding the roads. And there's a place between Ely and South to like where the forest ends, where there's a road that goes over a, a river. And it only needs to be a two lane highway in each, you know, road, one lane in each direction. Cause like it's not, there's no cars up there, right? Nobody goes there, hardly anybody goes there. And so there's a road that goes over this bridge, the bridge that goes over this, this river and the bridge is wide enough to have three or four like giant M1 tanks side by side and big enough to hold them with a little tiny road in the middle of it. I'm thinking, okay, and I don't know if people realize that or not, but this is a bridge built for iron mining equipment to drive on. Right. And they say, oh, we're just gonna build a little mine up here, no big deal, but they've actually rebuilt the road to handle this big equipment quietly. And if you look at the utilities, you see, oh, guess what? There's no overhead lines over this road here. When the line's gonna cross the road, it goes under the road, not over the right. And that's all for mining in a place that say they're not really going to do much mining. So it's it's one of those cases where like they build a big clover leaf and they never build the highways. And it just sits there in the middle of it, like Los Angeles or something, because it's right. there. There's one in South Africa like that, um, in Cape Town. Uh it's one of these big roads like that no one's ever going to use. That road will never need to be repaved or rebuilt because it's just built for handling super giant trucks that are hopefully never going to go there because they never going to do the mining up there. Well, these are the kind of conversations that Greg and I have when we get together. We're going to be putting together another podcast pretty soon where we'll talk about uh, electrical powered cars. And I hope that you stay tuned for episode number 32. This was 31. Thanks again for listening to Iconocast.